We're going to begin in Acts chapter 13. And Father, we do desire to stay and rest. There is immense peace and comfort that comes from Your Word. It comes from just soaking in Your Word. I think that's a good description, Lord, because Your servant Paul wrote that we are washed by the water and the Word. And so we pray for a washing tonight. A cleansing out, Father, of all the junk and the gunk in our lives. Cleanse our hearts and our minds. Refresh, Father, those who are tired and weary. And invigorate those who are weak. Give us strength by Your Spirit and and by the Word of grace. Now speak to us tonight the Word of grace, Lord. And give us ears to hear, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Acts chapter 13, we made a three-verse foray into it on Sunday. We touched on it just a bit. Let's go over that again. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. Now note that. He says prophets and teachers, and then he gives a list of five. I mentioned Sunday, perhaps these five were, were shepherds or elders there at Antioch, or perhaps not. Perhaps they were just simply, as Luke describes them, prophets and teachers, the list including Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, perhaps, possibly, probably. Simeon here is Simon of Cyrene, who carried Jesus' cross. And Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, who had been brought up, boyhood friends, Foster brothers, perhaps, even with Herod, the Tetrarch, who beheaded John the Baptist, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, and Saul. These are God's go-to guys. These are the five guys okay, of Acts 13. These are the equippers of the Christianos. Remember, at Antioch, they were first called Christianos, Christians, little Christ. And so these five guys were, were bearing, were shouldering that responsibility of equipping the saints there in Antioch. And look at what they were doing. First off, we note, they were ministering to the Lord. How do you do that? How do you minister to the Lord? Now, we can get all wonky with this. We can go off all esoteric. If you want to, we can say, well, ministering to the Lord is, is, is finding a, a, a word and, and speaking it over and over and getting yourself into the lotus position and, and, and drawing into that spiritual realm. That's ministering to the Lord. Hey, praise and worship He loves. Weirdness, not so much. What is it to minister to the Lord? The word here is instructive. The word minister, and it is the same word you see throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. By the way, if your Bible translation says they were worshiping the Lord, that's not a good translation. I think minister is a better translation because of where it comes from. The Greek word is letergeo. Letergeo. Translate that to English. Liturgy. Letergeo. It's where we get the word liturgy. Now in the English, a liturgy is a, a body of rites or a rite prescribed for public worship. 
Some churches are liturgical churches because they follow a prescribed liturgy. The Catholic Church is liturgical. Greek Orthodox would be liturgical. The Lutheran Church maintains that that Catholic background being liturgical in that week in, week out, they follow that prescribed ritual, that rite. The the Mass of the Eucharist in the Catholic Church is, is a liturgy that is walked out week in and week out. And any particular day that you go, any Sunday morning you show up, you're, you're going to know what they're going to do. Because the liturgy is the same. You might say, well, Rick, I come to the bridge and most Sundays are the same. We sing songs and we take communion and then we pray a prayer. You give the announcements and then you teach. It's the same. Yeah, but the teaching's different every week. And we choose different songs. <laughs> But a liturgical service would be strictly holding to the rites for that particular service. But here's the thing. These five guys were not liturgical. And the use of the word liturgeo, ministering to the Lord, the Greek translation, the way it was used in the common Greek is this. It means to serve at one's own expense. That's a little different. To serve at one's own expense. What it described was a public servant or even a commoner who had a civic duty to go beyond the requirements of the law and serve as a citizen. To serve the country or the nation at their own cost from time to time. In fact, you may recall that Roman law required every citizen that if a Roman soldier came up to you and said, carry my armor, you were to carry it for at least a mile. Liturgy. Liturgeo. Serving at your own expense. Well, I don't have time to carry your armor for a mile. I didn't ask if you had time. Liturgeo, and off they went. And Jesus took hold of this same concept and said, let's push it a bit further. Matthew 5, 41, he said, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him two. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Ministry. To minister to the Lord is to serve at personal cost. So how were these five guys, these prophets, these these teachers, ministering to the Lord sacrificially? Well, Paul would later write in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Your ministry, Paul says, is to serve even at your own expense. To serve even though it may cost you. And so these guys, these prophets, these teachers, they ministered to Jesus as they preached Jesus. They ministered to the Lord as they encouraged His people. They ministered to the Lord as they taught His Word. And they ministered to the Lord as they bore the persecution that came with it. Remember what what Jesus told Ananias about Saul? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Saul's going to be a minister of the gospel. One who serves at his own expense. Well, Jesus said in Luke 9.23, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So let me ask you a tough question. What has your ministry to the Lord cost you this week? This month? This year? 
how has serving Jesus become a personal expense for you? It's not about being a martyr. These guys weren't sitting around going, Oh, we're serving the Lord, suffering for Jesus. Life is so hard, it's costing us big time. That's not the attitude, that's not the point. The point is, as David once said, I will will buy nothing for the Lord that doesn't cost me something. Remember that? That's what David said when he bought the Temple Mount. When he purchased it, the owner of the Temple Mount said, here, I'll just give it to you. And David said, no, 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 it's got to come to me at personal expense if it's going to be for the Lord. So how has your ministering to Jesus, how has your serving the Lord come to you at a personal expense this week? They're ministering to the Lord. They're fasting. And as such, the second thing we see going on is they minded the Holy Spirit. Who said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. What did they do? Immediately, it says they fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them and sent them away. So they did what the Spirit asked because they were already ministering to the Lord. They were in tune with, they were in touch with the Lord. They were listening. And when the Lord said, I've got something here, they did it. They minded the Spirit. They heard from the Spirit. Then they fasted and prayed in the Spirit. And then they acted in obedience to the Spirit, sending Saul and Barney on their way. I'm sure he went by Barney. That was, you know, 2,000 years before the purple dinosaur, so I think we're okay. They sent Saul and Barnabas on the first of what will be four epic journeys for Saul. Four amazing journeys that we will travel with him as we continue on through the book of Acts. But note this, what did the Spirit tell them to do that they minded so immediately? He said, set apart for me. I was thinking as Les prayed. Uh, sometimes there are certain words we use we grow very comfortable with, but we're not sure, some might not be sure what exactly that means. And one of those words is anoint. We have been anointed. In fact, the Bible tells us you have an anointing and that you know. You know you've been anointed if, if you've been anointed. If you haven't been anointed, you don't know if you've been anointed. You know what I mean? You have an anointing. What's an anointing? That sounds like one of those words. i tell you what, it was a word I didn't use growing up in church because we didn't believe in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit anointed me that I realized what anointing was. To be anointing, to, to be anointed is to be set apart. Set apart, called to a task. Touched by the Spirit of God for a reason, for a purpose. And the Spirit here says, set apart for me. Aphorizo. In the Greek, aphorizo, which means to separate. To appoint. And by extension, to anoint. And that's what they did. They prayed for them, they laid hands on them, they fasted a little bit more, and then they sent them on their way. By the way, this is one of three times that Paul was appointed in his life. At least three that we know of. Three times where Paul was set apart. Galatians chapter 1 verse 15 says, God set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace. Whoa! Paul was set apart from birth. Set apart from birth. That's remarkable because from the time of his setting apart, 
And the time of this being called, being set apart in Acts 13, a lot went on in Paul's life that was not very anointed. Not very appointed. He was set apart from his mother's womb and yet set himself apart from the Lord as he persecuted the church. You know, sometimes God will set you apart and then years will go by before you realize that you were set apart. Paul says, I was set apart from birth. He says, I was set apart for the gospel. Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. What a great thing to be set apart for. I was set apart for good news. You know what I've realized over the last several years? I have not been set apart for bad news. There are several apps on my phone I'm about ready to delete because I wasn't set apart for bad news. I don't want bad news. I don't want to share bad news. I don't want to get bad news. And Paul says, I was set apart for good news. That was the second time he said I was set apart. And thirdly, Acts chapter 13, verse 2, Paul was set apart to go. Set apart from birth. Set apart for the gospel. Set apart to go with that gospel. And I want you to think about this as we continue on tonight. That appointment was not just to Paul. That appointment is to all. What appointment? The setting apart from birth for the gospel to go. God has appointed you. God appointed me from birth to go with the gospel. Well, that sounds a little Calvinistic, Rick. I'm just going to let you stew in some Calvinism for a few minutes tonight. Verse 4. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they had reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. Salamis was the largest city on Cyprus. On the eastern side of the island. So if you can imagine in your minds, and some of you are visual and some are not. I'm sorry for those of you who are not. I know that some would say, well, Rick, why don't you put some maps up behind you? Use the screens. Well, Paul didn't have screens for maps. <laughs> Imagine, if you will, the Mediterranean Sea. Israel on the eastern shore. Right? The eastern shore. <laughs> And imagine as we said Sunday that you head up to Antioch. That's where they were when the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me, Barnabas and Saul. So you go from Jerusalem and you travel all the way up to Antioch. From Antioch, you would simply travel down, let's get this right, travel down to Seleucia. That's right on on the shore of the Mediterranean. They caught a boat at Seleucia and they sailed across to Cyprus, which is the primary island. It's the only island there in the, in the north, northwest of Israel in the Mediterranean Sea. Now you go further, there are more islands, but that's the one that's off the coast of Israel, about 250 miles by, by flight, or, or if you're going to take a boat across. So they would sail from Seleucia across to Cyprus, the Isle of Cyprus. The first major city they came to on the Isle of Cyprus is Salamis. Not Salami, Salamis. And that's where they started to proclaim the word of the Lord, and that's the beginning of Saul's first missionary journey, as we like to call him. Sailing across, they're going to cross all the way over uh, the island of Cyprus, hitting a couple of cities along the way, preaching the gospel across the island of Cyprus, and then they're going to head on from there. And we'll get there in a few minutes. 
But note this, that they sailed across, and it wasn't just Saul and Barnabas. We find out right here that John was with them too. Their helper. Not John the Apostle. This is John Mark. John Mark comes along with them, young John Mark. John Mark's mother's house was in Jerusalem. You may recall that John Mark's mother's house is where the believers were praying and waiting on the Lord, praying for Peter's release from prison in Acts chapter 12. And Peter is released. The angel walks him right out of the prison after kicking him because he's sleeping. Walks him out of the prison, brings him into the street. Finally, Peter comes to himself and realizes that he really is not in prison. This was not a dream. And he heads straight for the house of the mother of John Mark. And there at the door, he pounds on the door. Remember the story. We just went over this recently. Rhoda comes to the door, and the believers who are praying for Peter's release don't believe he's released. Which is heartening for me, because there are oftentimes I pray, and I'm not really believing, but I'm praying. If you'll even pray... You have the faith the size of a mustard seed. The problem is when we don't pray at all. The problem is when we don't even have enough faith to go, Lord, I don't even see how this is possible, but I'm going to ask anyway. I'm going to pray anyway. Well, we went over all of that. So this is, this is the young man whose mother owned the house where Peter went. We also believe that this house was likely the house that Jesus and the disciples shared Passover. That the upper room was in John Mark's mother's house. We think that from there on the night of Passover when Jesus went out and across the Kidron Valley and out into the Garden of Gethsemane that perhaps there was a young man, young Mark, who saw them going out, crawled out of bed, and so not to lose them, wrapped himself in a sheet and followed them into the Garden of Gethsemane. And you know the story continues on from there, how how the Roman soldiers came in and they grabbed hold, they tried to grab hold of all the apostles as they fled in every direction from Jesus and someone got a hold of that bed sheet and, and this kid ran naked out of there. I'm sure straight home. We believe that he's the same young man talked about there in Mark chapter 14. We know in Colossians 4.10, we know that John Mark was Barnabas' cousin, which is why Barnabas took an interest in him and said, bring along Mark, and Saul's like, whatever. And they bring him. We know that Peter considered Mark to be like a son. In fact, the reason why the Gospel of Mark, it's thought, was based on the preaching of Peter in Rome is because Peter and Mark were so close. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. Peter says, my son, Mark... John Mark went with Saul and Barnabas, but he has some growing up to do, as we will see. Now, one question before we go any further. Why did they go to Cyprus? What's interesting is in the first few verses, when the Holy Spirit says, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, he doesn't say, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul and send them to Cyprus. He doesn't tell them where to go. All he tells them is go. Can I encourage you that sometimes we keep waiting and waiting and waiting for the Lord to tell us where to go and all He wants us to do is just go? It doesn't matter where we go, just go. So they go to Cyprus. Well, why did they choose Cyprus of all places? Anyone? It's Barnabas' home island. It's the island on which Barnabas himself grew up. Acts chapter 4 verse 36 tells us that he was a Cyprian. That is, he was an inhabitant at one time of Cyprus, born and raised. So Barnabas says, 
The Spirit's sending us. The Spirit's telling us to go. And I know the perfect place. They get on the boat. They sail across to the island of Cyprus. Home to Barnabas and home to the goddess Venus. Aphrodite, by another name, was worshipped and venerated on the Isle of Cyprus. You may know, Venus was the Greek goddess of love and beauty and pleasure and procreation. In other words, the Greek goddess of lust. Aphrodite. Venus. And there on Cyprus, there was a shrine, a huge shrine, that contained a grotesque black stone that the people of Cyprus believed that Aphrodite had blessed. She came up out of the foaming sea, onto the island of Cyprus, blessed this black stone, and left the people to worship her, or so the myth went. And she required all the inhabitants of Cyprus, to worship her. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Worship the goddess of love. We're all about love, tolerance, acceptance, right? Worship the goddess of beauty. Hey, who who, who doesn't like beauty? Worship the goddess of pleasure. Yeah, not so bad, is it? And procreation. Well, you know, love, beauty, pleasure, procreation. I mean, it's kind of a natural, you know, process of the whole thing. Sounds like a great thing. And every woman living on Cyprus was required by law to serve as a prostitute for some point of her life. And on this island, this Greek isle, blue waters of the Mediterranean, beautiful blue skies, Greek Isle, man, what a place to go vacation. The Isle of Cyprus, where the beauty of Venus was worshipped. And yet physically, morally, and spiritually, Cyprus was ugly. If you go back and look at history, this island was disease-ridden, it was depressed, the depravity was heavy on the island of Cyprus. You see, because the world comes out and says, Aphrodite... Just love everyone. Doesn't matter what they do or who they are. And if you can't love, the, if you can't, if you're not with the one you love, love the one you're with. Right? Thank you, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Just love and enjoy beauty and, and get into some pleasure. And if procreation happens, well, you know that's great too. And what happened is this island is a picture of sin sickness. It literally was disease-ridden, sexually transmitted diseases that were rampant on the island of Cyprus. And the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. Romans 3.23, oh, it looks beautiful on the outside. All the images of this Venus of Aphrodite, oh, this beautiful, alluring woman in flowing robes, but come on. It's kind of like the Seinfeld episode. You know the one, and I know I've used this example before, but where Jerry's dating a girl and depending on the lighting, she was either beautiful or ugly. And if they sat in the wrong booth on the diner, it was like, oh, we need to sit over there. And that's Aphrodite. Oh, she looks beautiful, alluring. Come and enjoy my beauty and my pleasure. And the people did, and they paid the price. And Barnabas says, I know just where we need to take the gospel. We need to go to Cyprus. James said, each one when he is tempted, when he's carried away by his own lust, when lust is conceived, it gives birth. 
procreation, to sin. And sin, when it is accomplished, brings forth death. So Barney says to Saul, let's go. I got Mark in tow. Let's go to Cyprus. And off they go. Verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, now Paphos is on the other side of the Isle of Cyprus now, on the western shores, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, or son of Yeshua, (laughs) who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, And this man was summoned, or he summoned Barnabas and Saul, and he sought to hear the word of the Lord. But Elymas, the magician, for so his name is translated, that is this Bar-Jesus, we're told he was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Elymas. Elymas literally translated means enlightened one. No doubt a name that Bar Yeshua took for himself, son of Jesus, which is also interesting. Don't think that Satan's not at work here, the master counterfeiter. Oh, he's the son of Jesus. Son of Yeshua. Elymas. He's an enlightened one. No, he's just a false prophet. He was a Jewish false prophet, we're told. A false son of Jesus. And they're out there even today. False sons and daughters of Jesus. He said in Matthew 24, verse 5, Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. So just because someone claims Jesus doesn't mean they're a follower of Jesus, a son or a daughter of the Lord. You test the teaching. You test what you're hearing by the Word of God. Because in these last days, we will see more and more and more false prophets rising up saying, Oh yeah, I carry a Bible. I'm a Jesus person. I'm good with Jesus. I think it's Jesus and this other stuff. Was this Jewish enlightened one aware of Jesus and what had taken place across the sea there in Jerusalem? We can't say for sure. Possibly. But what we do know is the proconsul's interest in the gospel was a direct threat to him. And so in verse 9 it says, But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him, and it was a staring contest. (laughs) Fixed his gaze on him, and in this staring contest, the winner would be the one who didn't go blind. As we'll see in just a sec. But note this, from here on out, from this verse, it's a significant place, I believe, in Paul's life, because from here on out, Saul quietly embraces the Greek name Paul. With the exception of referring back to his saving by Jesus on the road to Damascus, from here on out, he will only be known as Paul. Through the rest of the book of Acts, throughout all the writings of Paul, he's the Apostle Paul. He is no longer Shaul, the Hebrew which we talked about, means to ask or demand. Saul was one who demanded much. He was an ambitious man. He sought to be in demand in Israel. And yet, he left that name behind for Paulos in the Greek, little one, small one. Not demanding, just little. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10 
Paul, the little one, would write, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. Why, Paul? For when I am weak, then I am strong. And God is glorified in my weakness. Because then anything I accomplish, anything I do, is done by the strength, the power of the Spirit of God, not the strength or the power of Rick. When I am weak, then I am strong. The little one said that. You want to be great for the Lord? Be small in your own esteem. You want to accomplish great things for the kingdom? Be little your own power. You see, because... Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. They are weak. But He is strong. Verse 9 also tells us something about this little one. About why Saul suddenly can now go by the name. Can embrace the name Paul or little one. It tells us he's filled with the Holy Spirit. But you need to get the translation correctly here. It's very important. The verb filled is in the aorist passive. It's the aorist passive participle. Isn't that impressive? What does that mean? It means it literally Paul having just been filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, we knew Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. That happened when Ananias laid his hands on him and said, Shaul, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, that was a decade or so earlier than this. And now suddenly, we're told that Paul, having just been filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him. That is so significant. You know what that tells us? It tells us what we thought we knew. We were right. That the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a one-time event. It is not something that happens once 30, 40 years ago, when you happen to visit that Pentecostal church and it just happened. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a continual filling by the Holy Spirit as needed, when needed. When I am weak, He is strong. In the moment when I have great need, I am filled. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a continual, ongoing, as often as is needed, filling. And we see this throughout the book of Acts. We know the apostles, John chapter 20, receive the Spirit of the Lord. From Jesus Himself as He breathed on them. We know in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon them in power and they began to preach the Gospel. And we see throughout the Holy Spirit coming upon people and upon the apostles. And here, Paul, who already had the Spirit of God indwelling him, now has just been filled with the Holy Spirit as this enlightened one, this Elemis, comes up and starts to put down the message The small one filled with the Holy Spirit fixed his gaze on this guy. I love how that's written. He just fixed his gaze on him. He's staring him down. Gang, you have an anointing from the Holy One and this you know. We were talking on Sunday about the importance, the, 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 the critical nature of righteousness in the church. How important it is for the church to stand up for righteous principles, for the truth of the Word of God. And not to compromise on these things. 
the value, the importance of holiness. And I mentioned, and you guys remember, because it got real quiet, the issue of pornography among Christian men. Which the statistics are sad. And the reality is, and especially among younger Christian men, but older Christian men have the same issues. The reality is that a lot of guys say, I would love to stop clicking on internet porn. Did you hear, by the way? Playboy is no longer going to have centerfolds. Well, that's just wonderful news. They really are going to focus on the articles. Right? And so with this marvelous news comes the reality that they're focused, they're not going to do the centerfolds anymore because there's so much of it on the internet, they're losing competition. Well, that's great. The issue with pornography or any other sin that you may be dealing with is very simply, man, I can't stop drinking. I would love to stop drinking. It has me in its grasp. Wish I could quit. Little ones, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is your power to stop sinning. To say no to the things in your life that would stain your righteous raiment. The Holy Spirit, we forget about the Spirit. Man, I'm trying, I'm trying, you know, I'm trying not to go to any of those sites anymore. Have you asked the Spirit to help? I would love to just say no to that glass of wine. Have you invited? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I'm a tickle. Have you asked the Spirit? What, what did Paul say? Thanks, Les. Actually, I think Dave's going to. Someone's going, get me water. What did Paul say? Don't get drunk with wine. That's just dissipation. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why would Paul say that? Because he knows that the power to overcome these things in our lives is the power of the Spirit. Keep your finger there. I want you to turn back to Micah chapter 3. Micah chapter 3. That minor prophet. Micah. Just go left until you get there. Micah chapter 3. And the reason I want you to turn here... <clears throat> thank you so much, guys. <coughs> you rocked it. Micah chapter 3. This is remarkable to me. Now, Micah is speaking prophetically from the Lord. And in verse 8 of Micah chapter 3, he's going to give the only self-description of himself, the the only uh, self-description of the prophet that we get in the book of Micah. But listen to what he says. Verse 5, Micah chapter 3, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. Well, that would be someone like the Jewish prophet Elymas. Jewish Bar-Jesus. He's one of these prophets. Listen to the description. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. What does that mean? It means these guys are not liturgical. In other words, they are not in it for what it might cost them. They are in it for what they might get out of it. The false prophet. And verse 6, Therefore, it will be night for you without vision. And darkness for you without divination. 
The sun will go down on the prophets and the day will become dark over them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths like... (gasps) Because there is no answer from God. On the other hand, Micah says, and here's his self-description, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord. And with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. Quickly, flip, flip back to Acts 13. That's exactly what happens here. I mean, this is if Micah knew. Well, the Spirit certainly did. And Micah's self-description, filled with power, the Spirit of the Lord, and therefore with justice and courage, even to call out the sin of Jacob. And it totally fits, because here we have the small one, the little one, Paul, as he confronts a false prophet, Elymas, and in verse 10 it says, He looks at him, he fixed his gaze on him, and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil. Why is he a son of the devil? Because the devil is the father of lies. You enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him. Isn't that what Micah said would happen to the false prophets? Mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Exactly as the Lord warned through his prophet Micah, and this is something the Jewish false prophet should have known. Being a Jew, he should have been aware of the warnings given to false prophets. It will be night for you, Micah 3.6, without vision, and darkness for you without divination. And so Elymas goes blind has to be led around by the hand. And it is a serious warning. Listen, all those who would crook and twist the straight ways of the Lord will end up blind and sightless. Those who take the truth of the gospel and alter it to their own benefit will end up in darkness. They won't have the Holy Spirit because they lack holiness in and of their, their own lives, in and of themselves. And you might think, well, I lack holiness. How can I possibly call on the Holy Spirit? No, you don't lack holiness if you've been blood-bought by Jesus. If you've been washed in the blood of Christ, you are holy and pure before Him. And the Spirit comes and makes His home in your heart. Don't buy the lie that you're not good enough and therefore can't even call on the Spirit to help you with sin in your life. You have been purified by Jesus. But do you see why the call to holiness in the church is so vital? If the church caves in, if we as individual believers, if this fellowship caves in to the culture and gives up on righteousness, we will quench the Holy Spirit among us. And if we quench the Spirit, we will go blind. We will be in the dark when it comes to the truth. We will lose discernment. The truth is, is it's not about how we look, it's about how we see. How we see. Without righteousness, revelations cease. 
without holiness, perception and comprehension and discernment goes dark. It's difficult to even know the truth. By the way, it wasn't the blindness of this enlightened one. Ironic, his name's enlightened one and he goes blind. It's not his blindness that so impressed the proconsul. Notice the wording of verse 12. He was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. And so it follows the same pattern that we've continued to talk about. That miracles will get people's attention, but the teaching gets into their hearts. The supernatural. Hey, God uses and will use it to spin people around. To get them to listen up. But then the teaching of the Word, the teaching of the Lord, that's what really amazes. That's what alters our lives. Verse 13, now, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos. So they're down on Cyprus. They put out to sea there, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Doesn't seem like a big deal, right? It is a big deal. Mark bailed. He got out while the getting out was good. He had enough of this Cyprus mission trip and there you're continuing on. And so he heads home. And sometimes youth and inexperience and greenness (laughs) and immaturity can cause blindness too. The Lord told me something years ago. Please hear me on this. People at every age. The Lord told me, Rick, you don't know all there is to know. There are people older than you who have greater experience and maturity and you need to spend time with them. He told me years ago, this whole issue in our country of of sending older people out to pasture. Boy, have we missed it. There is great wisdom in those older than us. That was really hard for me to see from about age 18 to 28. My dad was an idiot. No, he was. He knew nothing. Dad, you're so out of touch with culture and the ways of the world. And then I turned like 29 and it was amazing how smart he was. I'm like, Dad, you learned so much in the last 10 years. Way to go. No, I was the one who began to grow up and realize what a value my dad was to me, and that everything he said when I was 18 was true. All the warnings he gave me that I ignored. He was right. right. You can't tell that to a 17, 18, 19-year-old. And if you're 17, 18, or 19 here tonight, please, (laughs) I know what you're saying. Oh, well, Ricky, you just don't know. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) The reality is you will learn just as I have learned. And I so value our senior saints. I so value... I'm 51 years old this year. I so value everyone 52 and older. Everyone 50 and younger, you guys got so much to learn. Not even funny. But everyone 52 and older. No, seriously. And, and John Mark was green. He had no idea. He was blind. He didn't know what he was doing. And so he bailed. He abandoned the mission. He ran home to Mama. Because it was just too hard. And I'm so thankful that I'm not judged by youthful decisions. So thankful God doesn't hold over my head. So thankful my own father didn't hold over my head the dumb things that I did in my 20s because I thought he didn't know what he was talking about. 
so thankful that that's water under the bridge. Because Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 13, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, and think like a child, and reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Well, aren't we supposed to be childlike? Yes. Jesus invites us to be childlike, but He does not tell us to be childish. And there's a big difference. To be childlike, trusting, open-hearted, receptive to the Word of God, but not to be childish. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all into Him who is the head, that is Christ Jesus. The good news about John Mark is that he does grow up, but not before becoming a great source of contention, causing these two missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, to part ways on their next mission. And we'll get there. But at the last, thankfully, Paul will see Mark, John Mark, as valuable. Second Timothy 4.11, Paul says, Hey, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. So even Paul sees the maturity in this young John Mark, who right now is just a big whiny crybaby. 